0: searched ants, as you do, and uh, did you know the ants are super strong and they can lift 20 times their own body weight? So if, an, if, if my son was as strong as an ant, he could lift a car, right? And was like, whoa, yeah, right, mind blown. Ants are pretty incredible. They don't have ears, they only hear and feel by the vibrations in the ground, uh, and when they're foraging, they leave a pheromone trail so they know where they've gone and they can call other ants to follow the trail too. At my house, if we even leave one small thing on the ground and we go out, come home, 10,000 ants, all over, this an explosion. Because they call their friends for a party. It's crazy. They look so unimpressive and powerless, but they are far from it. You know, today we are looking at this uh, this letter of 1 Corinthians to a real-life church who are struggling to live out what they believe, influenced by the surrounding culture, and struggling to live God's way, a better way. And Paul is speaking into uh, into a lot of issues in the air in this in this church. There are five different areas he's really speaking. We've been saying that for a little bit. Um, uh, and they are uh, there's divisions in the church, there's issues about sex and relationships in the church, food and other religions, and how they engage in that, uh, the church gathering and what that looks like, and the resurrection of Jesus. Five areas this church is struggling with, and Paul's gonna speak into each one of those areas throughout this book. And we find ourselves in the division area still. And uh, today we're looking at this idea of the church dividing over this topic of wisdom, of wise, of what, what, what looks wise and what is powerful uh, and what's foolish and not foolish. See, the, the city of Corinth was a Greek city. And so uh, the, the, the historical context of Greece was all about wisdom and intellect and philosophy and thinking. You know, Greece produced thinkers like uh, uh, Aristotle and Plato and Socrates and the, the, the history of Corinth was founded upon these sort of thinkers. And so coming to this context, this is where the church is. And this issue of wisdom and thinking and philosophy is not just a hobby they enjoyed. It's a whole entire worldview of how to view the world, how to view yourself, how to view divine beings. And that's what they, they're dealing with here. And wisdom for Greeks was about cleverness and power and style. And they're obsessed with wisdom And showing that wisdom off. So being wise is almost a a social status thing. I'm wise in the way that I think and engage with the world. And you want to show that to everyone else around you. So this issue of wisdom had come into the church. And the problem was that following Jesus was not seen as wise. It was actually seen as foolish. As foolish. You can see why, right? If you stop and step back for a second on what Christianity is about, it's about... Uh, a man who claimed to be God, who came to Earth in a very, uh, in a very uh, weird way—virgin birth, uh, uh, born in a, in a stable—and was a noble uh, or a king, or very kingly. Um, and on top of that, he then was crucified and, and died this horrible, um, co- uh, common thief sort of death. He then claimed to rise from the dead. His followers did too. And then he put his Holy Spirit into his believers and said, "Go and tell everybody." You sit back from that and think about that objectively and you think, that's just weird. That sounds foolish and unimpressive and not powerful at all. So in Greek thinking, uh, following someone who died a criminal death, that is foolish. That's the opposite of wisdom. And so this is what was happening infiltrating the church. And so some in the church were thinking, well, maybe we need to jazz up this message and maybe we need to uh, uh, um, uh, change this message of Jesus a little bit and make it more wise. Maybe we need some, maybe need some more impressive speakers. Forget Paul, let's bring other guys in like that guy Apollos and so we can show that we are impressive that this message of Jesus is wise. Maybe we need to present it more in a philosophical way. But this was not Paul at all. And so this issue in the church was that Jesus' death and resurrection was not impressive enough or powerful enough. And these chapters, Paul is going to address this and show them that true wisdom and true power is shown in Jesus' death and resurrection. As Cobb said at the start, it's not hard to resonate with, resonate with this. Um, I, know, I know for me, it's often really hard to share what I believe as a follower of Jesus. I forget embarrassment. when someone says to me, we'll "Do for a job," and I say, "I'm a pastor." let alone explaining to them what I believe. And it can be easy to shrink back and not want to tell anyone i being embarrassed. It seems foolish to follow someone who was alive 2,000 years ago. It seems very unimpressive. You look at the church around us and you think, well, look, it's not very impressive. It's a bunch of people who are different backgrounds and, and uh, we come together and no one's really uh, of a huge social status and, and the church can look weak as well. And it can be tempting to want to change this message that we follow, make it more plausible or palatable or easy to believe or impressive in some way. Or maybe just actually give up on it altogether. Well, this is what Paul is going to address uh, for us today. I'm going to walk you through this passage, try to understand what he's saying, and then show you how it applies to us today. So, have a look at this sentence, uh, sentence 18 on the screen. I think it's really the heart, the very first sentence there is the heart of what Paul is trying to say here to this young church and what God wants to say to us today. This says the message of the cross, really, of Jesus is foolishness. And the word foolish here is actually moronic. You're a moron almost. It's, a mor- it's moronic and stupid to those who want nothing to do with God. But he says, but to us being saved, those following Jesus and who will be saved, it's actually the power of God. And Paul is trying to build on what he said in the last sentence, in sentence 17, where he says, I wasn't sent to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of wisdom, lest the cross be empty of its power. For Paul, it's not about wisdom, human wisdom, or being impressive. It's about preaching Jesus. And to those who don't believe, uh, it will look stupid. It will look foolish. It will look unwise. But Paul says, "But but to those who are being saved, it is a message of power. Paul will keep arguing through this section again and again and again that the the words of wisdom, this philosophy, this way of thinking is empty. It has no basis. It has no foundation to it. It only appears on the surface to be wise, to be shown to be wise to the world. But he he wants to compare to the message of Jesus and the cross and saying it may seem foolish on the outside but it has this depth and this wisdom to it because it is this message of Jesus' crucifixion and his death is actually how humans become right with their God. It's actually about salvation. And that's the power of God. And Paul wants to point out that, uh, uh, that man's view of wisdom and God's view of wisdom are very, very different. And he goes on to argue that this worldly wisdom of the wise will not last. It will be destroyed. Have a look at sentences nineteen and 20 on the screen. Paul says this, For it is written, quoting God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Paul is saying here, in the end, what's going to show up? When it's all said and done, what's going to last? And he's saying, the wisdom of the world, this philosophy without God, will be found to be nothing. When Jesus returns, wisdom that is devoid of God will be shown to be foolish. That's what that's what true uh, what, what foolishness looks like. And Paul doesn't leave it there, though. He keeps on saying, though, in God's wisdom, he knew uh, and he made it that, that we could not know him through intellect or philosophy. So he decided in his kindness to make himself known. Have a look what he's saying here in sentence 21. He says, For since in the wisdom of God, in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what was preached to save those who believe. How did God make himself known to show himself to be reached? Well, he said he did it through the preached message of Jesus. That's how God made himself known. That's God's wisdom, to allow himself, to reveal himself through the cross of Jesus. Psalm 24 says that Jesus is both the wisdom of God and the power of God. He's both. The cross of Jesus shows both. Jesus is the power of God because He makes possible the forgiveness of sins. He makes possible a relationship, a real relationship with your Creator forever. He makes possible the forgiveness of sins. He makes possible uh, defeating death and sin and Satan. He is the power of God. The one thing that casts a shadow over every human being is death. And it's holding our lives. And Jesus defeats it and God's saying, "This this is my power through my Son. As Romans 1.16 says, The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. That word power is like dynamite, it says. In the, in the, in the original language, it's dunamis, um, dynamite. It's the power of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God because by, by, by through him and, and uh, we can know who God, what God is like. God is fully and finally revealed in his son Jesus. God is unreachable and only has become fully known as he has reached down to us. He took on human flesh. He became a man and he walked among his people. Jesus lives and interacts with people, and we can see what God is fully like as we see Jesus interact with people. And he lives a perfect life and he dies and he rises again to make God the Father fully known. And he shows God to be a loving father who reaches out to his people. He comes to seek and save the lost. You can't find God through intellect or wisdom or philosophy, but rather by admitting that you are lost in humility, crying out to God for help and forgiveness in His love. See, although Jesus' death and resurrection may look foolish on the outside, it's actually shown to be power and wisdom, God's wisdom. uh, A few years ago, many years ago now, I was, um, back when I was playing sport regularly. I was playing rugby union, and um, I think I was about 19 at the time, and uh, I got invited to play in this team where we played a touring Japanese team, and uh, and, uh, at the time, I think I was, uh, Katie and I, my wife, were not dating, and so I invited her to come watch me um, to try and impress her with my mad rugby skills. (laughs) I knew what girls liked. Um, (laughs) LAUGHTER and, uh, and so I thought, you know, Japanese touring side, rugby wasn't very big in Japan, we're going to destroy these guys and, um, and it'll be great and I'll score tries and Katie the think I'm great. And uh, anyway, uh, the time came uh, and so we went down to uh, Newport Oval down to the beaches uh, to play and the Japanese side were there, were warming up and they were really into it and we were sort of barely warming up, we just sort of rocked up almost on time and thought, you know, we just got thrown together last minute and we thought we had this in the bag. Anyway, we line up for the game. They kick off, and I uh, kick off, and it goes right to me. I catch it. I'm thinking, I hope Katie saw that. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> I run as hard as I can towards the line. I think, I'm going to bust through this line straight through and score a try. And I run as hard as I can to the line, and I hit the line at full speed, and I get picked up off the ground and speared backwards into the ground, smashed. And I thought, hope Katie doesn't see that. And um, we keep playing the game, and uh, they destroy us. They are so good. Uh, we have, I have vastly underestimated this team, and uh, I was, we were shown up and beaten soundly. Um, uh, they didn't look like much of a team at all, and uh, we, we mistook them totally, and uh, they were a great rugby side. And Paul is saying uh, something here of the good news of Jesus and his death, his power and wisdom, and may look Unimpressive. The message of Jesus and his death and resurrection may look very weak and unimpressive, but it will be shown in the end to be power and wisdom. And I think he's trying to really lay out here a real warning that needs to be heard. I think, I think today in our culture in our time where we are as followers of Jesus more and more on the margins, and uh, we can be tempted to move on, to let go, to feel like it's not worth it, that maybe following Jesus is not as impressive and it's hard to follow. And I don't like standing out. I don't like swimming against the culture anymore. And maybe it's time to either soften, soften or move on from it. But God is saying here, and Paul is saying here to, to his readers, is don't move on. Don't let go. True power and wisdom is only found in Jesus. It may not look like it is, but it was shown to be. And it was shown to be on the day when I return. See, we all live, the Bible says, we all live in light of a final day seen movies about it, but the Bible speaks very clearly about a day of judgment day where Jesus will return, and every knee will bow, forced or unforced, to King Jesus. And, and I, I, don't, I don't know where you stand today in a room this big. I'm not sure where you, where you, what you think of Jesus, but I want to show, say at least be sure of what you think of him. The Bible is clear, and it says there's a day, there's a day of reckoning where every person will give account to God for how they've treated him. And I think it's worth being sure where you stand with him. And that day is coming. And everything, Jesus says, everything uh, for what it is will be shown will be shown in, in, in the light. Jesus and the cross we've shown up to be as power and wisdom, and everything else that is not of him will actually be shown to be foolishness. So the question that this passage is asking is where do you stand on that? Where will you stand? You know, I think we make decisions every single day that either help us stand firm to the end or lead us away from that. Every day we make decisions that will either keep us close to Jesus or lead us away from that. It will keep us reminding us of God's wisdom and power or we'll take steps away making things more important than Him. There's a day coming where every decision we make, every thought that we've had, we brought to light. And everything will be shown for what it truly is. I want to encourage us to make decisions in light of that day. Even though it doesn't make, full, it doesn't make uh, impressive sense now, But make, make decisions in light of that day with a long view in mind. That day will be a day of great reversal. A great reversal. And this is what Paul goes on to say to remind the Corinthians of this. Have a look at these sentences, 26-29. He says, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even when things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Paul is so keen for these young Corinthian church to see things, not with just eyes of now, but eyes of long-term, of what is to come. To live life in light of eternity and make decisions in light of eternity. He invites these Corinthians to look around at the church, brothers and sisters that are sitting next to them. And he's saying, not many of you are, uh, were wise or powerful of noble birth, and that's the fruit of being a follower of Jesus. It's not going to look powerful or wise. In, in, the, in the eyes of the wisdom of the world, there isn't much power or wisdom there. But God says he chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God's choosing so-called foolish people to shame wise people. And again, Paul is thinking this final day where this great reversal will happen, that things that look foolish now will be shown up to be wise, and things that look wise now will be shown to be foolish. Jesus returns and he says, I will exalt the humble and, hu- and, and humble those who, uh, uh, who exalt themselves now. God uh, chose the nobodies, the lowly, to shame the strong. It's a great reversal. See, what he's saying here, it's not about how impressive you are, how wise you are now, what people think of you, how impressive and things you pursue. It's all about God and and, and how we live in light of Him. And all this happens, so as sentence 29 says, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. When you meet God face to face, which we all will, It won't be about our independence or our effort or who is wise or what we've done or how impressive we are or our philosophy. It's all about God and who He is and His Son Christ. It's the day of judgment. When we stand face to face with God, we won't say, hey, look, God, look how impressive I was or look at this. We'll be in awe of who He is, seeing His power and His wisdom. And those who have pursued their own wisdom, devoid of God, that says here, we'll put to shame. Paul is warning his readers, his Corinthians, not to move on. But then he goes on to comfort them. I'm going to show you sentence 30 and 31. He wants to warn them and then remind them of what they have and comfort, comfort them in that. He says in sentence 30 and 31, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to, who, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, it is, as it is written, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Paul then jumps to what, what these followers of Jesus have, who they are. We get a bunch of these amazing truths and promises that are so rich and deep that are also ours. If you follow Jesus, these are yours, and I just want to spend time. If you switched, to, switched out, switch on and listen to this, because this is amazing. It says, we are in Christ. What does that mean to be in Christ? It says, well, you are, you are united with Jesus. You are united with him. That's the relationship you have with him now, In his death meaning that our sin has been paid for. Jesus died on the cross and paid for the sin of the world. If you're in him, your sin has been paid for, your guilt taken away. If we're in him, we we, we are in his resurrection, defeating death forever. Meaning we have defeated Satan, death, and we are raised with Jesus. Uh, Ephesians says that we are now, right now, seated with uh, Jesus in the heavenly realms. That's the relation we have with Christ. It's that tight, it's that sure that wherever Jesus is, we are there too. It's because we don't feel this, but this is the reality of what is going on. God is pleased with us. He accepted us as His children. It's like His Son, the Lord Jesus. Because we are in Christ, we are united with Him. Hebrews 10, 19-22 to 22 says that we can draw near to God with all confidence because of Christ. Right now. We can have full assurance We can call God, Dad. We can trust Him. We can run to Him. We can have a relationship with the King of the universe, trusting Him in all situations because we are in Christ, united with Him. Jesus crucified also means, as it says in sentence 30, our righteousness from God. That is, we are now acceptable to God. God is holy and perfect. We are flawed. We fail. We fail ourselves. But sentence 30 says we are righteous On the cross, this amazing transaction took place. On the cross, uh, Jesus takes away my sin, my guilt, my shame, my bad record, my rebellion, my failures. All of it is done, past, present, and future. Jesus gets on the cross and says, it is finished. He pays for it all, once and for all. And what do I get? I get his perfect life, his perfect record, his perfect position, his perfect righteousness. It is imputed, as the Bible says, given to me. So we, can know, so, so we who follow Jesus can now no longer say, God doesn't love me. God doesn't accept me. God doesn't want me. Or I've done it this time. I've sinned too much. God, when it, no, that, is, that is gone. Because I now have Christ's righteousness imputed to me. His perfect record. See, um, no, matter, no matter how you feel towards God, In Jesus, you have been stamped once and for all righteous, perfect in His sight. That's yours in Jesus. And I know for a lot of us here who don't even like ourselves, this is so hard to accept. We don't like who we are, so we think, therefore, how can God love me? How can God accept me? And we listen to our feelings rather than God. Because God says to you, I love you so much, you are clean, you are righteous, you are my child, and as John 10 which I love, and nobody can ever snatch you out of my hand. You are my child. Through Jesus' death for us, because of our union, it also says we are now holy, we are sanctified, we are set apart by God through Jesus. We are clean, pure, washed. We are God's holy temple. He gets his Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, and he puts it in us. Marking us, sealing us as His temple, as His child, as a down payment of like, they're mine. It's crazy thought we are indwelt by God forever. His Holy Spirit sealing us. Sentence thirty also says we've been redeemed. That's the language of being bought back from slavery. Being being a price being paid, so we have been set free. It's the Bible uses this idea of Jesus. Purchasing us by his blood, by, 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 by uh, calling us back to himself through his life for ours. The price has been paid, and God has done it all. In all this, he, he is doing all this. Is known for boasting, he says. Only boast in the Lord. There's no room to trust your feelings either. Feeling like you aren't good enough, or you are good enough. It's not about you. It's about God. And what he has done, and the cross. And that's the beauty of what Jesus is is saying what, what, what the gospel says. It's not about you. It's about Him. And he seeks and saves us. So sentence 31 says, Then let him who boasts, not in himself, but boast in the Lord, because He's done it all. It's all about Him. Many uh, many years ago, there used to be a big, a big theme park called Australia's Wonderland, uh, way of, uh, out at Eastern Creek somewhere. And... Um, uh, I remember going there as a young child, and uh, they had these old-fashioned cars on the track. There's this photo on the screen behind me. And uh, I had a great time researching this last night, by the way. It was, uh, it was good. And uh, in these cars, uh, you jump in them, and you drive them. But you don't accelerate or brake. Um, they just go around the track, and, uh, and they all went the same pace. And I used to love it. I was, you know, eight, nine, or ten years old. I would go out there with my family, and I was allowed to drive a car. And I was like, wow, this is amazing, you know, I can drive this car, it's really cool, and you jump in, you turn the steering wheel, and you drive around this track. And uh, one day, I was probably about 10 or so, I was getting a little confident, thought I was a great driver back then, and, um, and uh, I thought, you know, I wonder what happens if I let go of the steering wheel, and uh, see if I can drive with no hands. Anyway, I let go, and what happened? Nothing. The car kept going straight. The car just drove itself, and I remember thinking, oh, I've done nothing. I can't drive. This car goes by itself. It's on a track, and uh, I got really disappointed <laughs> that it wasn't about my driving skills. It wasn't about me and my, and my uh, uh, great steering ability. This car kept going, and we bumped its way around the course. It wasn't about me. It had nothing to do with me and my mad driving skills, and this is what the Apostle Paul is saying here with this. He's saying, It's not about you, how wise you are, or how wise you look, or how foolish you look. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about Jesus and all you have in Him, and Him being the power and the wisdom of God. That's what it's about. So if you're going to boast in anybody, boast in Him. Paul then finishes off by reminding uh, the readers of this Corinthian church of what. Uh, he was like when he preached to them when he first came, and I'll look at these sentences and, and then we'll finish up. Um, when I came to you, brothers, uh, uh, when I came to you, brothers, did not, uh, I did not come uh, proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness, in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of, spirit, of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith... Might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul wasn't about this impressive speech or eloquent presentation. He's saying it wasn't about me, it was about my message of Jesus and Him crucified. That's where wisdom and power are. Paul's saying it's not about the person who speaks or or how they present, it's actually about the message. He says, Remember, I came to you, and I came to you from about, I was in a bad place. I was fearful. I was trembling. I was weak. I was tired. But the power came from the message that I spoke, not the way I presented it. He says, This power came from Jesus, and he became crucified. So their faith might not be about a person or how they presented it, but rather what he spoke of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, this afternoon, as we've looked at this, and it's has been my experience this week, I really hope that God has shown you and reminded you of the power and the wisdom that is in the cross of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus' death and resurrection for us in our place is and always will be the center of our faith. It has to be. The, the, the cross of Christ is not just the ABC, the beginning, the first few steps of the Christian life. It is the A to Z. We never move on from it. We live in light of it day by day by day. It's the wisdom and power of God. It's what brings people, ordinary people like you and me, into a living and eternal relationship with our Creator. It's how we know our God. It's what changed everything forever. It's what guarantees our future. It's what gives us assurance. It's what gives us hope every single day as we wake up and face this world. It's what reminds us that we are loved unconditionally, knowing that we do not pursue things of this world, because our God who loves us so much that is enough for us. The cross is why we can call God Dad, call Jesus our brother, Saviour, King, and Friend. The cross of Jesus Christ is power and wisdom. And it is the foundation of our faith, of our lives. And can I encourage you as you leave here today? Is to remind you of today. It is the centre of our lives. But more than that, contemplate on this regularly. Contemplate on the power of the cross. You know, it's it's powerful. Knowing and meditating on what it means for you personally to be redeemed by Christ, made holy, forgiven, transformed. It's power. I love hearing stories of transformation. I loved hearing Chris, uh, Chris's testimony the other week and having a coffee with him this week and seeing how Jesus just grabbed him and changed him. To so the power of the cross. Amanda Woods from the Morning Church and her testimony, we saw at the Town Hall, changed lives because of the power of the cross. It's powerful. It brings freedom. No one act or event has or ever will change the course of history like his death and resurrection. It's powerful to change us now as well. When we meditate on the cross, we see God's wisdom. We see more of what God is like. One of my favorite pastors, John Piper, says the cross is the blazing center of God's glory. It's a blazing. Because why? Because you see who God fully is at the cross. You see his love, his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his compassion, his, all those things. But you also see his justice and his righteous wrath at rebellion. You see, it all explode in one moment in history on the cross. And as you meditate more on the cross, you will see and become more secure in who you are. You'll see the things of this world are foolish. You'll be assured of God's love and your identity in Him as a child, a child of living God. You'll see the change in your life and then you'll have confidence to, to, to speak of it. You can't help but speak of it. If it is the power of God to bring people to life, you will just want to speak of it to other people and have confidence that it can change lives. Often we're afraid to speak of the cross to people because we are worried of how weird it sounds and how nothing will happen. But if we meditate on it and see the change in our lives, we, will, can't, we can't help but to speak it to others. We need to remember the cross, Jesus' death and resurrection. It is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. Therefore, I will not be ashamed of it. I want to say, to finish up last few questions, do you, do, you, do you have confidence in the cross? Confidence to change lives, confidence to change your life and change those lives around you. Do you believe the cross is the power and wisdom of God? I'm going to invite the band up. and We're going to sing and we're going to celebrate. It's going to be a celebration of the cross, of Jesus, as we sing this afternoon. I want us to think of that when we sing together. But I want to give you time to reflect as we do here every single week at City Light, to reflect on what has God said to you, to what you want to do in light of this, to not go away changed, but to do something, to pray, to be thankful, to meditate on the cross, whatever it is. I want to give you time now to spend time with God or to think, and then we're going to sing together.